Crosstalk, the unintentional transfer of signals between communication channels, a casual conversation. Hello world, this is Video Game Crosstalk, the bi-weekly podcast of gamers talking about tech, science, and whatever else comes to mind. I am your host, Anthony Rossi, and with me this week is Joe Berman. Joe, what's going on? Not much, man. What's going on? Hey, a little something different this week. Uh, You might be able to tell in the recording quality of this. We are actually in the quasi-recording studio of my dining room right now. <laughs> uh, Joe is a close friend of mine. I haven't seen him in way too long, and he doesn't have the proper recording equipment at his house, so we're going to have to throw a microphone <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of my dining room table and uh, see how this turns out. So, Joe, as I said, a uh, good friend of mine from a while back, he is involved with a lot of sustainability and sustainability initiatives. So, uh, Joe, what can you tell me what's going on in the world of sustainability? A whole bunch of really interesting things are going on in the world of uh, sustainability. Um, so know, what what is your background as far as sustainability is concerned? Well, right now I'm, I'm running a consultancy. It's J.S. Berman Consulting. And, you know, we basically provide sustainable business solutions um, and sustainable business guidance to corporations and trade organizations. Um, you know, with a focus predominantly on trade industry and on the building sector. Um, and there's also quite a bit of focus on food and on ag. Um, and and so, by ag, we mean agriculture. Agriculture. Sorry, yep. I don't mean to jargonize too early on in the conversation. <laughs> oh, oh, don't worry. We'll get it nerdy. The jargon will be deep. The jargon will be deep. Um, so, you know, my, my, my background typically puts me in a position where when I talk about sustainability, I'm focusing on building or building-related, uh, you know, um, sustainability technologies or means and methodological approaches or on things that connect directly to the food industry. Um, and, you know, the stuff that I, I think I'm really focusing on right now or the stuff that I think is indis- interesting and really cutting edge um, is is really, uh, at least on the building side of things, um, is the movement towards virtualization. Uh, really? and Yeah, it's the movement towards virtualization and uh, a recognition that buildings and really the built environment are becoming, they're being recognized within, I think, the more sophisticated ends of the building community as organismal. Um, in that, you know, buildings basically have a, they have a biology, they have a functionality and, you know, that, that roughly mirrors what biological organisms, you know, require to, you know, to survive. You know, they have respiratory systems, they have power systems, they have intelligences, um, you know, they have waste systems, um, that, you know, from a configurational perspective, really roughly, you know, mirror organic biologies. And when you start to look at those things on mass, you start to look at the built environment really as kind of more ecosystem oriented. When you start to integrate things like the Internet of Things or hyper-virtualization or the application of mobile technology uh, into that perspective on, on buildings, um, the conventional thinking of, bu- on, you know, of the built environment, um, mm-hmm. it, 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 it becomes something fundamentally different. It becomes almost 
an ecological perspective or a you know a much more biological perspective on the built environment. So that's that's the there's a there's an evolution I think that's going on in the building industry that is moving more in that direction, especially as virtualization allows for more sophisticated, more intelligent, better pre-programming of building systems so that the biology of those buildings and the the biology of those systems operates at a higher, I guess, sort of more optimized uh, frequency that really roughly mirrors high-functioning organisms. Wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's the building side. So of that's the building. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you're referencing or framing building and building projects in an organic type of framework. Mm-hmm. So how would you break that down? You mentioned well, waste is pretty easy to imagine. Sure. I mean, uh, people are inside the building. They operate. They generate waste. Sure. Um, any type of waste, be it... Um, just paper waste or packaging or depending on what that business is. You mentioned agriculture. So of course there's going to be shrink or, you know, food that just didn't sell or food that, um, isn't up to quality or something, something like that. Uh, so what other systems would you equate in this virtualization of a building? Well, what's interesting is that, you know, when you, so look at your own biology, Okay. okay. And think about the waste that your body generates. And it's roughly the same for a building. I mean, there's obviously, there's effluent, there's human effluent, mm. there's the conveyance mechanisms, which are, you know, your, your plumbing systems and your, and your toilet systems. Mm-hmm. And they do essentially for a building, what your body does naturally. Yeah. Um, and that's actually kind of significant. I'm not sure how sure. many people really think about that. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, seriously, the building the building biology really roughly mirrors mm-hmm. uh, a human biology. You've got your HVAC, which essentially equates to a human respiratory, respiratory system. system. Mm-hmm. You've got your power systems, which you know equate to re- really kind of your cardiovascular mm-hmm. system. Ostensibly, you've got building intelligence, centralized building intelligence that you know you're building you're you're building automated systems that can be pre-programmed to make all of the other fun, you know mm-hmm. systems within the building not only function but function interdependently uh, which okay. is really interesting and then you know what's what's really remarkable about the i think sort of the respiratory cycle of the building and the energy cycle of the building is that buildings produce emissions profiles that are really very closely equivalent to the human respiratory process and to the you know the co2 and the various other gases that you give off just from breathing mm-hmm. so you know I, I i guess i see building biology and human biology is really kind of analogous to each other in a lot of ways and what's remarkable is if you know if you've ever been in a in a public space where there's tons and tons of people and seen how they interact with each other really we have the opportunity to look at urban landscapes in a not radically dissimilar sort of way where the urban landscape and its biological needs or its sort of you know its its bio building related needs mm-hmm. really in a lot of ways kind of mirror what complex you know densely populated human systems look like uh, you know at, at an organic level you know and that just this just popped into my head it is amazing how many non-organic things end up acting like organic. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking about this when I was learning about computers like years ago. 
properly learning mm-hmm. about computers and how they're designed and how they're built and how their memory and storage works. And the way that it was described was in terms of the human brain. Mm-hmm. So you have the the central processing unit, the hard drive, and mm-hmm. the rammer, like mm-hmm. your basic operator, and the, the CPU or the the microprocessor that controls everything. That's kind of like the brain. Your hard drive is like your long-term storage, and your RAM is your short-term memory. And that's the way it was designed. I kept couldn't help but think, was the computer designed after the brain? I think from a, you know, it's interesting. My mind immediately jumps to neural networking when you start having a conversation in that way. In that, I would think that the the pathways that are designed into the computational systems required to operate buildings are probably. Um, I think maybe from a design perspective, not radically dissimilar mm-hmm. to what you would see in, you know, in yeah. complex neural networking. Like maybe if it wasn't even intentional, mm-hmm. I think it just kind of ended up being that way. I think that, you know, it's funny because there's this, uh, there's this really interesting school of design called biomimetics, which is one of like the sexiest design concepts <laughs> I have ever heard. That, that's going to get a link in the show notes later on. Okay, so, so biomimetics? Biomimetics. Okay. And so biomimetics ostensibly is, is this notion that the things that we design most effectively mirror naturally occurring Organisms, okay. Essentially, in that, okay. So, if you look at evolutionary biology, all right, as an example, okay, the the systems, the organisms that are alive on this planet right now are the byproduct of hundreds and hundreds of millions of years worth mm. of really essentially like Darwinistic natural selection. Right. So, the stuff that's here right now is extraordinarily sophisticated. Well, one moment. Uh, that noise that you just heard in the background, uh, being that we are in the recording studio, that is the dining room, we also are privy to the activity and sounds generated by other organisms, such as our dogs. <laughs> so that thump was Sophie taking out one of her Kongs, uh, and she's just kind of laying there. How you doing, Bo? Yeah, and Kinsey's over there on the couch. She had, she's not making too much noise. But... I'm going to make a Kong joke, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, uh, yeah, we've got our... Um, Audio recording assistants uh, at work in the background. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, biomimetics. Well, so so basically, the 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 thinking is it, behind biomimetics. If you look at organisms as they are currently, and okay. you look at the sophistication of organisms as they are currently, and if you look at essentially the design mm-hmm. behind the biology behind those organisms, these are things. These are organisms that have gone through hundreds of millions of years worth of natural selective processes yeah. to be the thing that is the most successful thing that allows it to exist now. Yeah. So you can't Very have, fine refining. Oh my god, it is like the ultimate quality control, quality yeah. assurance mechanism. And so what ends up happening through through a process like biomimetic design is that the engineering and design community is looking at the extraordinarily battle-tested design foundations of biological of systems or or, or 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 you know organic organisms or whatever and it's it's mimicking the things within those i guess sort of naturally occurring biological systems that work most effectively and then embedding them into yeah. 
And whatever we've been seeing that yeah. we've been seeing that all over the place, um, where you see the stuff pop up on your social networks, where it's like this thing walks like a caterpillar. Yeah. This thing it, it's got wings <laughs> that fold like a bird. It's, yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. These designs have evolved. Yes. through trial and error, yes. lots of error, and a few <laughs> successes, but these are the most efficient designs yes. occurring naturally. So, yeah. Seek inspiration somewhere. Seek inspiration from something that works. Absolutely, and you know it's interesting because as you were talking, I, I my mind went very quickly to things like virtual reality. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so you know, if biologically we're capable of connecting with the natural world through you know our various senses, I, I think one of the most interesting offshoots of what this biomimetic design constitutes is the desire to create an alternative reality that oh, will yeah. either mirror or supersede our ability to connect with the one that we're operating within. Naturally speaking. So, anyways, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's what these uh, conversations are all about. Absolutely. So, yeah, sustainability. (laughs) (laughs) Getting way back. Um, You want to talk food? Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. All right. So, okay. So, you know, one of the one of the neat things that I've seen, uh, you know, on the food landscape, and I'm going to stay away from potentially political hot button topics like GMOs because those tend to stir ire on both sides of the debate. Um, but, you know, outside of that, you know, one of the things that I find really concerning, but at the same time, I think kind of inspirational, like I, I see an amazing challenge that we're going to be connecting with as a species in the very near future, if not in the immediate. And mm-hmm. that's that, you know, by 2050, we're going to have nine and a half billion people alive on this planet. We're, yeah. we're living in a world that will become ever more resource constrained. We're living in a world where uh, income inequality is really kind of the socioeconomic milieu that we all operate within globally mm-hmm. and that stratification of wealth is only increasing in pitch and dimension as time goes on. Right. Um, and, you know, we're also living in a world where global food systems are going to be stretched to sort of ever... Uh, you know, more demanding limits as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and, and that's not, uh, I guess, sort of a single valence argument in that, you know, we're going to be dealing with water issues. We're going Mm -hmm. to be dealing with arable land issues. We're going to be dealing with changing rainfall patterns. We're going to be dealing with rising ocean levels. So so there's going to be some really significant things. Well, and that kind of goes back... um Last episode, I had Nikki Vick on, who was totally awesome. You guys should absolutely go back and listen to that episode. She's a fantastic chick, real cool. Um, and in relation to that episode, my original guest I had mentioned is Paul Gallery, who is involved um, with wilderness conservation. He is actually still out on the West Coast helping out with the wildfires. That's and and you know what, you're you're completely correct. Right. Actually, the wildfires example is a perfect example. It is a perfect because, example. Because okay, let's talk wildfires for one second and yeah. then let's tie it into the flooding that we're dealing with down in places like Baton Rouge. Right. You know what I mean? We're dealing with a fundamentally destabilized global climate and that is going to put some really significant stresses on the integrity of our food system not only domestically but internationally. One more uh, quick side note. Uh, this is not a political podcast. I do not want to dip into the politics at all. And Joe is like wildly shaking his head nope. right now. No, this is this is an apolitical conversation. <laughs> apolitical. Uh, we will adhere to the established and evidence-based research. 
global warming and climate change is real. Humans are causing it. Yep. End of discussion. That's pretty much where we live. Okay. So, <laughs> so the wildfires uh, out west and the, mm-hmm. the flooding going down in Baton Yeah, I mean, those are those are really fantastic examples of. I mean, climate change is is really typified by by extreme climate you know conditions you know yeah. and and aberrantly extreme climate conditions i mean we have been this is the hottest year on record for god only knows how many years and it's been like that for god only knows how many years i mean right. the trend is obviously getting hotter and that produces right. some pretty specific you know weather related effects or or whatever um so anyways that's that's going to have some pretty significant uh impact on on both domestic food supply chain integrity mm-hmm. um and it's also going to have a pretty significant impact on global food systems i think we sort of take for granted the the relative abundance that we have in our domestic food system you know i think we have to start to look at this on a more globalized level and recognize the fact that there are places in the world right now where climate change related you know food instability or insecurity is producing you know major geopolitical uprisings it's producing war i mean these are things that have been documented by the pentagon and they're only going to increase you know they they have been cited by the pentagon as some of the highest level national security threats that this country is going to be facing over the next 50 years and it's odd to think of climate change affecting these things oh absolutely when you factor in the desperate you all right over there, Pop? Sorry. A <laughs> little bit of chaos going on in the other room. Uh, when you factor in these food shortages yeah. or these uh, desperate measures that sure. are caused by the climate change, you're creating a very desperate populace at this point who Absolutely. are either willing to do you know desperate things or they, this is the kind of stuff that they're uh, kind of forced into. Sure. And when people get desperate and restless, there's going to be... Chaos. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be geopolitical unrest. There's going to be conflict. Period. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is 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 the is the the catalytic factors yeah. that contribute to global conflict. Right. So it's not a direct result. It's more like a secondary. Would it's, you say? There's there's there there. There's a correlation. There's a correlation, and climate change is going to create all kinds of ancillary. I guess sort of more idiosyncratic right. and circumstantial. Um, you know, offshoot effects or mm-hmm. like secondary effects. Um, and they're going to do everything from sort of de- destabilize, you know, global uh, food systems to, you know, deal with things like ocean level rise, and ocean acidification, etc. So, anyways, I, I didn't want this to be all gloom and doomy. So, <laughs> so, so the, the direction that I was hoping to take this in was the fact that, you know, these these could be these are these are gargantuan issues that we're going to be dealing. These are, I think, honestly, some of the most significant challenges that we will have faced as a species since like kind of the last glacial maximum like twelve and a half thousand years and change ago. Mm. Um, which was the last time that we saw a global climate change that had anything that was even roughly equivalent to what it is that we're we're gonna be experiencing over the next hundred years or so. Um, so you can look at this as all gloom and doomy, or you can look at it as a catalyst for innovation. Um, you can look at it as an opportunity for humans to become more sophisticated, more adept uh, at adapting mm-hmm. to changing climates, not only here on this planet, but also at some point in time as we start to move and hopefully colonize other planets, which I think will be you know, happening probably within the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a relatively conservative estimate yeah. given what 
you know, SpaceX is doing and given what, you know, some of the NASA projects that are going on, etc. And, and despite the SETI uh, extraterrestrials. <laughs> and um, non-secretary. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is actually was in my show notes. I want to talk about the, uh, the SETI investigating possible extraterrestrial signal from deep space. Which sadly will not be our extraterrestrial overlords coming in from 95 uh, light years away from the Hercules galaxy. And no, just the... We're uh, kind of sad that our backyard <laughs> visitors aren't going to be coming and <laughs> hanging out with us anytime soon. Uh, oh, uh, well. So anyways, so um, back to the, the, the challenges portion of things, which mm-hmm. I think is, is super interesting. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the, the primary stressors and one of the primary concerns with... This global food insecurity, you know, as as we're going to be dealing with it over the next fifty years and change or, or so, is is um is protein scarcity. Okay. Um, so how do you provide protein to a, a growing population, you know, in a resource scarce world that's dealing with things like climate change? I'm I'm kind of happy to report that um, there's some really interesting uh, innovative technological development uh, in terms of I, I mean I know that folks are familiar with you know new 3D printer technology but mm-hmm. there's 3D printer technology now that is being used to print food which I think is kind of remarkable in that the print medium is I mean it's basically what it would it be like proteins and glucose and stuff like that well sensibly yeah I mean essentially what you're talking about is using animals so so the the example that I wanted to use was you know right now there is a company that is starting to print hamburgers now they're printing <laughs> hamburgers out of cultured cow cells they're mm-hmm. basically beef cells for lack of a better way of putting it that have been cloned in a laboratory and are not from any living you know, quadrupedal organism that's ever walked around and eaten grass. That is amazing. It's pretty yeah. remarkable. And so, you know, imagine if the, the the meat that we wind up eating over the next 50 years, you know, is ultimately sourced not necessarily from the field or from the farm, but is cultured in a lab and can be cultured to whatever extent is necessary to feed, uh, you know, the protein needs of, a, of an ever-expanding global population. So I, I see those kinds of technological innovations and the stability that they could conceivably lend to our, our global food supply chain as, as, you know, some really positive um, outcomes from, you know, what could be conceived of as climate stress, uh, you know, within the food system. And... This is literally straight out of a book I read several years back. And I can't remember if it was either Neuromancer... I love the fact that you're referencing Neuromancer, but anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was either Neuromancer um, or Count Zero. I don't think it was Mona Lisa Overdrive. It's within the Sprawl trilogy by William Gibson. And there was a scene, I think it was... Yeah, it was Neuromancer, because the main character was still kind of tweaking out on whatever quasi-dystopian futuristic drugs uh, they were taking in the series. But um, he was at some classy restaurant, and he is spaced out on whatever techno-cyberpunk meth variant. Drug they, cocktail. Whatever. <laughs> they were uh, taking it in that series. And he's all spaced out at, in this fancy restaurant, and the people that he's kind of like undercover with are raging mad. Like, you're in this expensive place. This is naturally grown beef. Mm-hmm. They actually had to provide for it and feed this animal and mm-hmm. raise it before it was slaughtered. This wasn't something that was grown in a lab. Yeah. And, like, that was written in... I've got the wiki page up right now. So, Neuromancer was up uh, released in 1984, and we are now in 2016. 
fiction has become reality in in every conceivable way when it comes you know it's funny because as you were talking about that i was also thinking about philip philip k dick and you know do do andrew's <laughs> dream of electric sheep and mm-hmm. that's a much deeper rabbit hole that goes in a different direction but, <laughs> yes, it does, um, yes it does but but you're right i mean you know science fiction has become science fact and science reality at this point in a variety of different ways um and you know it, when you start talking about some of the gene sequencing work that's being done right now and when you start talking about the fact that at a cellular level we're able to replicate even the most basic building blocks of the you know of the of the the food that we eat and we've developed technology that allows for us to to print those mm-hmm. those building blocks into forms that will you know really provide the kind of nutritive you know properties that we need to to survive uh, the the possibility for us to live in a very different you know i guess sort of food reality mm-hmm. um is 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 really kind of immediate um and from a sustainability perspective you know it's funny when you when you talk about things like um just use the beef industry as a perfect example All right, go ahead. you know if you look at the the emissions from the beef industry um it actually exceeds the emissions that come out of single passenger automotive vehicles in terms of its climate change impact mm-hmm. the the beef industry alone has an absolutely gargantuan you know emissions profile and it is contributing actively in a very aggressive way to the climate change you know that we're experiencing because it's field grown so what happens if what we're talking about over the next 15 20 years is a fundamental paradigm shift to lab grown cultured um you know i guess sort of beef based protein what does that do to our ability to reduce climate change impacts it's, it could potentially be really significant. So, you know, when, when science fiction becomes science fact and it provides us with an opportunity not only to feed an ever-expanding global population, but also to do it in a way that's more sustainable and reduces our anthropogenic impact on global climatological systems, that's a pretty remarkable thing that we're doing in terms of our ability to overcome, you know, the challenges that we're being faced with presently. And that's just kind of one example. Yeah. And it is, uh, I will admit, it is freaky to think about that. Yeah. It is absolutely freaky to think about that. But given the situation that we're in, you know, is that what we need to do? You know, one of the things that I think is going to be remarkable about the next hundred years is I, I think that we're going to find out we've been in a relatively stable geological time period for about, you know, ten and a half thousand years. And I'm totally treading on this lightly because there is a very adept geologist sitting on the other <laughs> on the other side of the wall right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting my timelines right. But, you know, when we were in the Holocene, Holocene yeah. was a roughly, you know, or, or is it ten or twelve thousand years? 10,000-ish, right? Both are healthy. Both are healthy? Okay, good. Okay. Um, uh, yes, by the way, my wife is in the living room right now, and she is actually a geologist. She's a geologist, and legitimately, like, I'm treading very lightly on this subject right now for fear that I'm going to be rebuked at the end of this podcast. But, um, you know, it was a really stable, um, you know, climatological period for the planet, and now we're in this thing called the Anthropocene, which is, you know, it's essentially the, the anthropomorphically impacted, um, you know, global climate as it's changing dynamically right now. And I think that our ability to adapt 
to that changing climate and to the population growth issues and the resource scarcity issues that we're going to be facing, we're already facing them, is really kind of going to be the biggest set of challenges that we've ever faced as a species on this planet because there have never been more people. The, the population the, the, is po- out of control. It, it's out yeah. of control. The population is, uh, it is an unsustainable population mm-hmm. growth curve at this point. We're dealing with things, you know, in a resource constrained world. The climate is changing and we've never had to deal with these kinds of stressors simultaneously at any given point in our in our you know in this in the history of our species so this is one of those adapt and evolve this will test the the really kind of the metal of our of our species yeah. adaptability you know and these are not future problems this is right this now is right this is now. right now like we are in the middle of it like yes, these, we are the start of these problems has already gone and passed mm. Like we're beyond oh, yeah. the like oh what's oh, yeah. the issue is going to be in mm-hmm. a few years like we're we're here it's here it's here we, anyways so sustainability sustainability <laughs> <laughs> oh so how long have you been involved in sustainability too long too long <laughs> uh, it's been because you and I were you and I were coworkers at a, yes, our former employer, place of employment we shall remain nameless yes we shall remain um, and that was when, when did you swing by. It was way before I was dating that lovely woman in the other room. <laughs> I started working there in 2009. Uh, okay. And I have been a sustainability professional kind of ever since then. So... We're seven, talking seven-ish eight, years. Yeah, seven-ish years, give or take. Haven't quite hit a decade yet. But... No, I, 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 no, I have not hit a decade yet. I'm, <laughs> yes. I, I shudder to think the cynicism. <laughs> I hope that there's like a ring or something that you get when you deal with that but anyways um you'll get an xbox achievement well i, I get an xbox achievement Bing. you have been practicing sustainability for 10 years have a widget <laughs> oh man so that's awesome um as far as tech stories are concerned we're already like pretty well into this podcast uh but as far as you know science is concerned I'm going to make this a little more lighthearted. Uh, Bill Nye yeah, has Bill landed Nye. a uh, Netflix show. We love Bill Nye. This country, this world needs more Bill Nye. In this country, this world definitely needs more Bill Nye. And I was thinking, like, leading up to this podcast, and I was flipping through um, the news articles, and there's a ton of them out there. Like, everyone, I was like, oh my god, Bill Nye is going to get a show. I can't help but think, you know, I'm going to bring the show down a little bit again. Do it. No, it's um, good. It's, it's kind it's of common, sad. It's though. That's real. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. It's, why do we need a celebrity to bring these issues to light? You know, that's a really interesting question, but I, I what, one of the things that's, it, it, when you started talking about Bill Nye, I started thinking about someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know what I mean? And I, I think that there, it's a very rare personality mm-hmm. um, that has the ability to take complex technical scientific subject matter and make it interesting Mm -hmm. and engaging to the general public in a way that is accessible it's a i think you know what i think you have i don't think it's about celebrity i think it's about communications competency i think that i think that guys like neil degrasse tyson or like bill nye have found a, a, a communications methodology that allows them to really connect with um the general public in a way that uh and I'm, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to tread lightly on this, that I, I wish the rest of the academic scientific community was more able to emulate. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things, you know, and, and I'm, I'm loath to admit this, you know, in the, United, in the United States right now, is that our scientific literacy, you know, at least as we sit in, you know, um, relation to some of the other countries in the world, we're, we're not as literate as we could be. We're not as literate as we mm-hmm. should be. Um, and I think, you know, the more 
folks like Bill Nye or the more Neil deGrasse Tysons that we have out there that are able to bridge that communications gap and make science interesting and engaging and understandable yeah. for the general public. I think it's great, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, my wife and I actually were able to go see a live, I guess we'll call it show. Neil deGrasse Tyson actually came to Proctor's Theater in Schenectady. I've been told he is awesome live. He is hysterical. Love it. <laughs> it was several hours of him just talking about... Hollywood, actually, and how they... That must be really entertaining. Oh, it was... <laughs> 30 years or so of science uh, in the movies, and he explained, like, where they got things right and where they got things wrong. Oh, my wrong. God, I, saw, I heard something on NPR about that, where he was talking about watching a movie, and he basically sat and nitpicked... I mean, it might have been, like, the new Star Trek, or the, the, first, the first new version I mean, of, of... Oh, uh, he's, he's done that for several things. Um... He said that he was he was looking at the constellations or the the placement of the stars in the opening sequence and basically oh. said that they were wrong, which I have to tell you, I think is one of the most fantastic, he, like, talk about a continuity issue. He, he did that for the Titanic. That's what it was. It was I'm the sorry, Titanic. Okay, yep. that's, it was it's the exactly Titanic. Was. Yep. He looked at it and he's like, those stars, oh God, how did he put it? We know the date. We know the time. We know the location. Be we know everything. People. Yeah, <laughs> and he said not only that, but like he he drew a line down the center of the screen and removed some of the uh, special effects, and it was a mirrored image of the stars. So it was like they just made a star cluster on one side and then just mirrored it over across the center point. What? And like he's like, this is prep. That's just a <laughs> <laughs> And he actually, oh, who was it? was it? Cameron. That did the movie? Oh, God, what is his name? It's not like I don't have the internet in front of me. Ah, uh, uh, the internet. Yeah, oh, internet. Um, get another window open. Titanic. Who was it? Oh, come on. Just... I feel like I should know this. This is like Pop Culture 101. Uh, the film, 97. Jeez. God, that was a while ago, wasn't it? yeah. Uh, James Cameron. Okay, so you know, it's act- funny. I wanted to say James Cameron, and then I was pretty sure that he was a like a prime minister in England, and it didn't sound right to me. It is James Cameron that's a prime minister in England. David, David Cameron. Cameron. <laughs> I was wrong Cameron. Thank you. I was going to say it was the camera that threw me off, and I was as like, soon as you say Cameron, like I think you're right. you're like me. <laughs> So yeah, right, Joe apparently fails world leaders for <laughs> take world leaders for two hundred, Alex. But anyways, and and uh, I lost my two hundred, but that's neither here nor there. But uh, yeah, he talked to James Cameron and like he complained to him like several times at different banquets and stuff like that. And uh, Cameron would just kind of smile and say, "Did you know that my movie made this many millions of dollars or something?" Ooh, burn. But <laughs> but uh, towards he was going to make a remake and uh, a remaster of it. And apparently someone from his production company gave Neil deGrasse Tyson the call and said, Hey, I'm with James Cameron. We're going to do a digital remaster. That's fantastic. And he says that you've got a star map for me to use. So in the remaster... Too cool. Yay, nerds! Yeah, I was going to say, and science wins. <laughs> and science wins. Uh, so yeah, Bill Nye is going to be jumping on Netflix. Um, did you watch any of Cosmos? When I did watch some of Cosmos, okay. yeah, I thought it was extraordinarily well put together. That was very it well really put was. together. It was super engaging. It was definitely spoken. It was definitely communicated in a way that was like incredibly accessible. It was very accessible. It yep. was very well produced. Yep. Um, and from Seth McFarland, there we go. <laughs> from Seth McFarland, 
it was very serious. It was very serious. Um, something completely unexpected given his previous bodies of work, but sure. Um, but I think he recognized the fact. I think that he recognized that there was something that was very important that needed to be. And put that's out exactly into the what it was. Yeah. And you know, there are times to be funny, and then there are times to be extraordinarily serious. And give the man credit; he knows how to produce a TV show. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he knows how to work the production industry. So. You get enough clout behind it. You get enough proper funding and support, sure. and you have someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson who's also supporting, and he's your main narrator. And yeah, that's that's what you end up. No, but with. absolutely. But I mean, the other thing too is I think that there's a legacy to that that's a very difficult thing to get away from. And when you're following in the foots of Carl, footsteps of Carl Sagan, like right. don't don't mess it up. Take it, <laughs> yeah. take it very seriously. Like these are important. Yeah. it's it's an important part of the. You know, of the public discourse, you know what I mean? Especially in a, in a portion of the public discourse that is not as well informed as it could or should be, you know, providing better resources to, you know, improve that aspect of the public discourse in a way that's like, you know, meaningful and easily accessible. I mean, those opportunities don't come around very frequently. And when they do, I would hope that everybody who's involved in it recognizes the value of that opportunity and, you know, does whatever they can to sort of kick it over yeah. the goal line, you know? So... So, yeah, Bill Nye. Yeah, Bill Nye. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to move into some gaming and general geekery news. But first, uh, Joe brought over a nice case of, what is it? Lagunitas. Lagunitas IPA. I am not an IPA kind of guy, but... I'm currently on my second bottle. This I is gotta, actually I pretty tasty. I gotta tell you, this is like, as far as I'm concerned, so I am like, I am not only an IPA guy, but apparently like per capita, Boston consumes like more IPA than anywhere else oh, in the country. Really? I'm from Boston, the IPA is in the blood, and I gotta tell you, this is the best, I guess, sort of like major commercially brewed IPA that I've found. I think it's killer. Personally. This, yeah, I'm usually not, I'm typically not an IPA guy, but this I don't know. Half bad. This, this isn't bad. This isn't bad. This is pretty good stuff. I have to move on to my second bottle. The, hey, all Please right. continue. Uh, <laughs> got the bottle opener right over mm. here, brother. Um, Thank you. Yeah, oh, so there's yeah. a little beer talk for you. Thanks. But into some geekery type stuff. Stranger Things, uh, the Netflix series. Eh, continuing on with Netflix series. Indeed. Uh, Stranger Things was released a... Uh, or the makers of Stranger Things have released a season two teaser... Now, unfortunately, Joe has not watched this I'm yet. so sorry. I feel as if I've committed some great cultural sin. My wife is chastising me extensively at this point for the fact that I've <laughs> Stranger Things. Oh, so, you need to watch Stranger Things. You know, I have this weird feeling that it's going to happen like one weekend and I'm just going to wind up binging the whole thing. You're going to binge the whole thing. It is such great 80s sci-fi hmm. goodness. And it's done... Pro- like, I'm going to... I'm going to fanboy a little bit right now for Stranger Things. Fanboy away. Um, it is done in such great 80s fashion, but not overly campy. You know, I've actually heard that. I've heard that the the um, the writers and the director had, like, an extraordinary attention to detail in terms of, like, hairstyles and clothing. And, 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 yes. and, you know, like, furnishings and houses and, like... You know, just the accoutrements and the you know the um, the cultural bric-a-brac of the time period. Yeah. I heard was like exactly on point. Yeah, there is like no anachronisms. That's in really, there. That's really cool. Um, like everything, all of their decor or little decorations around the house are all straight out of the eighties. 
all the cars are straight out of the 80s. I don't know how they were able to find that many cars built in the 80s that are still in that good of condition that are not like show cars. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like your common station wagons and sedans that hmm. are like rolling through the street. So it's not like the muscle cars that you would think in some of the like, oh, the old body cars and big and huge and show. These are like the uh, the woodies. I was going to say yeah. random run of the mill. Yeah, sort right. of. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so there's all of that. The um, the intro is what I found particularly 80s-licious, if okay. I may go there. You, you um, already did. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, when, the, when the font appears on screen, it's like straight out of the 80s. Awesome. This real blocky type of font. I know exactly the, uh, the font you're the, talking about. <laughs> the, uh, it's that I haven't seen it, and the yeah. minute you describe that font, I'm like, I have seen that font. <laughs> you know what that font yes. With the, the kind of blur that's just kind of like the repeated fade yep. of the, the letters. And even the theme music is like... Like the beat machine. Yeah, yeah awesome. you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's all dark and whatnot. Moody. So Yeah. Um, but what really impressed me, or what I really enjoyed the most about Stranger Things, was that it was very limited on CGI. Like, they did not go down the CGI route. I am a huge fan of the lack of CGI, personally. <laughs> like, you know, I uh, it's a very rare show or movie that I've seen where the CGI really, really, really does what it's supposed to do. And when you get to that level, it's expensive. It's expensive. It's incredibly expensive. And it's it's incredibly expensive. Like, to the point where it's prohibitively expensive, Mm. I would think, a lot of the time. And I, you know, I agree with you. I think a lot of the time, the effect that you're going to get through non-CGI methods is going to be vastly superior, probably a hell of a lot more cost-effective. You know, you would think so. I would. I guess to do the to the slap it on type of CGI, and I, I mean no dominant. disrespect. It, it, no, but to, it, just, it diminishes the quality of yeah. your product because you can tell so easily. Oh, yeah. Like. Of course, it's good in comparison to what the average person can do because I can't get anywhere near that. But as soon as you see some type of like CGI serpent crawl out of a hole, it's like you know it's a poorly done CGI. When you have the puppetry or the other costume effects, the lighting and the reflections are perfect because... It's, it's an real. object yeah, that's actually absolutely. there. Absolutely. I'm waiting for you to make a Fangora reference, but anyways, please continue. Uh, actually, I'll go, I'll go the route of Underworld. Okay. Uh, when the first movie first came out, they did all almost all puppetry. Mm-hmm. And the only CGI effects that they had was like maybe rain or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just the little little touches here and there. But all the werewolves, mm-hmm. um, they were all costumes and puppetry and there's some extraordinarily masterful you know uh um, oh, be- they're beautiful yeah. i mean there are some incredible creative yeah. folks out there that do those things yeah and so when you have the lighting or like the action scenes you don't need to worry about is the fur flowing with the wind the correct way does this image look flat you yeah. know what i mean like does it look too is it believable in the space right does the uh does the head jerk back at the proper moment of yeah. impact you know it's it's all there because it's actually happening all there yeah so it's really or for me anyway i was really appreciative that they went that route and use lighting effects to kind of obscure anything that you might be able to pick out because you know it was Mood lighting on top of proper 
visuals. Do you think that that's part of the reason why the show was as successful as it's been? Is that it's it's you know in some ways it's kind of a throwback to different, I guess, sort of towards a different cin- uh, cinematic tradition where people are using people were using more of the puppetry than they appear to be using now. Like, I wouldn't be surprised, and it gives it a, it gives it a more real feel, and you know people are going to gravitate towards that because it's more of an anomaly now. Everything that we just said into that, I would probably agree with. Okay, um, because it wasn't like. A great a portal opens up and this weird thing comes out sure. and it kind of floats around but it doesn't cast the right shadows or it's like oh, great some CGI tentacle just came out of uh, the ground it wasn't that so yeah the realism like the sense because you're that's what you're seeing yeah is much more solid okay so but yeah they they announced that there will be a season two all that they released was basically the the episode titles. Okay. So that's all they're giving you. At so what this you're point. saying is I have time to binge before the next binge. Oh, easily. Okay, and it's right. a short season. It's only eight episodes. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, it's very short. I could definitely plow through that in a weekend. Oh, easily. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, I'm um, going to mark my calendar. <laughs> all right, good man. Um, I got some guys at the office to watch it. And uh, after the first guy watches, he's just like, oh my god, this is great. I've heard, I gotta tell you, yeah. I have not heard anyone say anything but the best things about it, which yeah. is really kind of an extraordinary, you know, ringing yeah. endorsement. And, you know, I, I don't think that you hear too many shows that get that kind of yeah. ubiquitous, you know, I guess sort of like public praise. Right. I think. And, and I was just listening to the uh, 8 Bourbon podcast, and... Adam was saying how it's getting higher rate or more viewership than like any other Netflix series. Again, I'm not surprised. Like, it's seriously, everything that I've read or seen in the social media space, because I mean, that's how a lot of us get. I think mm-hmm. the preponderance of our, um, I think, more culturally mm-hmm. shaped news at this point, yeah. um, you know, has been nothing but positive. So I'm not, I'm not surprised by that at all. So, I really, actually, I honestly haven't seen anything. Neg- I've seen no negative critique of the show, really, whatsoever. Really, yeah, nothing. Of, yeah, I mean, and that's 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 pretty extraordinary. That is, yeah. So that is awesome. So we're getting. So yeah, if you haven't watched it yet, highly, highly recommend it. It's only eight episodes; they're an hour long, but uh, easily doable if you're a super binger, you know, in one sitting. If you're like that, but um, yeah, Joe's smiling on the other side of the table. <laughs> Uh, do bathe on occasion, please. <laughs> it's only eight episodes. If you need to bathe more than once during those eight episodes, that's a totally separate conversation. All right, well, that's that's all my situation. <laughs> oh man, awesome. So so yeah. So moving on, another reason why I couldn't wait to have Joe on this podcast is he is the person who originally got me into the Assassin's Creed franchise. Thank you, Joe. It's totally a pleasure. <laughs> I, you know, I when I played the first the first Assassin's Creed, um, you know, open disclosure, I'm a recovering archaeologist and a bit of a history buff um, <laughs> because that's kind of what I did my degree work in. Yeah, what um, was your degree in exactly? Okay, I legitimately have the most obscure degree that a person can have. <laughs> I have a master's in ancient Near Eastern and Eastern Mediterranean archaeology from <laughs> University College in London, which means that I have moved on in my professional pursuits to something that actually has career development potential. <laughs> and I say that tongue firmly implanted in cheek. And so to any alumni that may listen to this, I'm terribly sorry. But um, uh, so... 
you know, it, 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 playing the game um, was really kind of extraordinary because it takes place during the Crusades, and you know, it, it granted it was certainly after the time that was the focus of my study area, but I I found it like wildly historically accurate, not only in terms of its storyline, but also really aesthetically. Like the aesthetic of it, I thought was extraordinarily well researched it was very well developed it was beautifully executed and it was like a total pleasure to play and I remember when you and I first started having conversations about it I think that that was essentially what it, what I said to you and I, I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled that you got a chance to play it and, and enjoy it yeah the entire series is basically known for its historical accuracy yep. as accurate as a video game can be to the point where there's actually like isn't there a disclaimer at the beginning of it um, yes um, this this game was developed by a multicultural Something staff. Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, because they present things the way, basically the the way it is. And it's like Certainly. we don't mean to insult any particular sure. culture, but this was what was happening in the world. At Absolutely. That time. And, and, and what's interesting is that, especially given some of the geopolitical things that were going on when the first when the first Assassin's Creed was released, that kind of cultural sensitivity was actually really kind of paramount, given mm-hmm. where we were at as a nation and what it was that we were doing militarily in the Middle East and mm-hmm. the and the communities that we were connecting with and the the potential parallels that could have been drawn culturally between what was going on in the video game in the what 12th century give mm-hmm. or take um and what was going on you know i really think during during modern times so yeah so a lot a lot of potentially touchy things yeah very much so game. absolutely and i remember just walking around um damascus in the game and it's just Gorgeous. I mean, very simple color palette because that's the region of the world, but at the same time, gorgeous. I'll say it again. Yeah. Um, And that is as close as anyone in modern times is going to be able to get to anything that would remotely resemble what those cities would have looked like during that time period. Yeah, it's funny, and, and I don't want to sort of take the conversation, you know, too far back to where it was. That oh, we let the tangents fly, yeah, but I mean, man. Just, <laughs> sort of tangentially, you know, like going back to the, the virtual reality mentioned, you know, earlier mm-hmm. on in the conversation, you know, I, I honestly wonder sometimes whether or not those kinds of digital experiences, you know, the, for things like Assassin's Creed or for, you know, the ability to walk through a space that hasn't existed um you know, in 900 years and change, I wonder if that, you know, if what we're doing now in terms of the gaming experience, you know, is mm-hmm. really kind of the precursor to what VR may be providing us with the opportunity to do, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years in a, in a much more developed capacity. We are getting incrementally closer to that reality. I don't doubt um, that. At the last E3, uh, Bethesda during their presentation. I love Please continue. Oh, they, they make they make phenomenal digital products, but oh, yeah, they they are so massive in their scale yes. that people just give them a pass on all the bugs. But they, I mean, but they're, 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 this, huge. This, they're huge. But the sophistication mm-hmm. of their of their digital products is so. Um, extraordinary. Like, their IP is brilliant, it's beautiful, it's well executed, and and you're right, I mean, you know, when you're, I think that when you are in the innovation space, digitally, mm-hmm. like, there has to be a certain amount of latitude that's provided for the bugginess of... There's of so innovate. many different things, and you do the quest so asynchronously... Oh, yeah. ...that you know, trying to accommodate things being done out of order, like, I was playing 
uh, Deus Ex Mankind Divided last night. Yep. And I had... Is that the new Deus Ex? That's the new Deus Ex. How is it? Because I saw the commercial for it, and so I gotta tell you, it looks phenomenal, and again, <laughs> like, maybe another rabbit hole that I will be disappearing down. Yeah, you, you will be. Um, did you play Human Revolution? I have not. Okay. okay. Well, at the beginning of Mankind Divided, they have a 12-minute video that'll catch you up on the plot line. That's they, excellent, because admittedly, like, I'm a total fantasy video game, you know, enthusiast, mm-hmm. and and uh, some of the things that deviate from those storylines are things that I don't have a tendency of necessarily gravitating towards. However, mm-hmm. um, after having played things, you know, like Skyrim or like Witcher 3, which, you know, I know we're going to be chatting about. Yeah, yeah, we'll be Total chatting. non-sequitur. But, um, you know, I, I, I realize that there's a, a pretty interesting opportunity to branch out into some other really pretty exciting gaming spaces that have storylines that I just haven't explored mm-hmm. yet. And Deus Ex, definitely. I mean, just given what I saw on the you know on the the trailer and on the commercial for the new one um looked intense yeah. and extraordinarily well developed and it, you know what it looked it looked smart it, like is. it looked it's it looked it looked, smart. it looked smart it looked philosophically deep it looked conceptually deep it and is, like that's what that's what that blew my mind i've only played uh human revolution and i'm currently playing mankind divided there were several others that came before this Human Revolution was my entry point into the series, and I'm absolutely hooked. It is very philosophically deep in the conversations that you have with the people around you, mm-hmm. and when you hack into computers and you read through people's emails and stuff like that. You know, it's. In, I was listening uh, again, and I, I'm an avid NPR listener, and I'll mm-hmm. totally own that. And I don't know what that says about me, but that that probably communicates a lot more than I would like it to. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I was listening to uh, this. I think she was like an environmental biologist or something like that. And she was talking about how the next human evolution would not be a biological evolution. So basically human biological evolution is operating too slowly Mm -hmm. um, for us to really see... um, You know, the, the byproducts of that evolutionary process and that the next real major evolutionary phase isn't going to be biological evolution. It's going to be hybridization. Um, And that's basically where this lives. Yeah. Eos and um, the people behind Deus Ex held a press conference. Oh my god, I saw that. I know okay. exactly what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they, that's exactly where there's they're a, There's a global ethical discussion that's going on on this that, to the best of my knowledge, was actually catalyzed by Deus Ex. It because is. There's it no, actually because is. This has never been part of... I guess sort of the, the the global scientific discourse when it comes to cybernetics or... It's because, like, we have launched ourselves into it. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. So, like, to back up a little bit, any type of technology that we develop enhances our innate human abilities somehow. Absolutely. Going back to the the rock instead of using our fist Going or Going to fire, team. man. Yeah, we're building a fire. So, but to... So, blah, blah. So you have a rock to kill an animal. Sure. All right. That evolved into a sharpened rock. Sure. Which evolved into a spear. Which, which evolved into to... more sharpened rocks. <laughs> even more sharpened rocks. Well, smaller sharpened rocks yes. on the end of these spears. And yep. now we make those spears even smaller. Now we have a bow and arrow. Yep. And however far you want Absolutely. to go with that. So that's just weaponry. We have eyeglasses to enhance but our it's all, natural... But it's all externalized. And I think the difference here is that when you start talking about biointegration, it's a very, very, very different technology conversation because it's the first time that we've ever been able to have technology like fundamentally integrated into 
into our bodies to the point where it can actually become augmentative. That's and that's where I was going to, awesome. like in a very long-winded way. But basically, everything that we do—telephones, the internet—that increases our ability to communicate. Uh-huh. Um, so with these cybernetic enhancements, and I've talked about Deus Ex on like every one of my episodes so far, but it's that deep and significant. It's very, it's, it's very significant. It's very it's, significant. It's, it's very. It's it. It is now like climate change is now. Right. Like it is now. So, I mean, what they're discussing is how far can we go with this? How far can we ethically go with this? Because we are way past, and I've said this in previous episodes, um, we are past the conceptual phase. We are now in the refinement. I have to tell you, honestly, you know, that's, I think that that's, that's an amazing question because, quite frankly, I don't think that there's an ethical paradigm that exists to do the, to address the things that we are not only on the cusp of, but that we're technologically capable of now. I think is. I think that we're. To, I think that we're going to literally have to envision a new techno, a, a, a new ethical paradigm when it comes to that. And that, to the best of my knowledge, that was part of what the press conference was about. Right? Yeah, it was they had an entire conference about it all. And I think it's going to have to maybe parallel that of um, massive like just weaponry and yep. other communication yep. stuff because or AI based weapons systems. Because I know that that's another conversation that's going on right mm-hmm. now where where the 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 global you know, uh, legal um, infrastructure does not accommodate for the sophistication of weapon systems that could be deployed onto battlefields globally that are artificially intelligent. There's just yeah. not there's not a legal framework to address how these things can be there and what yeah, should what, be allowable. What what is allowable? Yeah. What, at what degree? At a what power level? Absolutely. It's it, and do these things have autonomy? That's another very scary question, but sure. that's the direction that we're heading in. Um, I can't remember how we got onto this tangent, Deus but Ex. you know, De- yeah, Deus Ex like spawned it all. Ex, yeah, but <laughs> you know what's interesting about the con- about the the conversation around Deus Ex is that you know when you start talking about you know augmentative uh, biointegrated cybernetics or something like mm-hmm. that, and when you start talking about artificially intelligent weapon systems and their deployment on the battlefield and the lack of a legal framework to deal with those things, you know, geopolitically, or when you start talking about the lack of an ethical framework to I guess sort of or to, to frame what is allowable and what isn't allowable when it comes to augmentative bio you know biointegrated cybernetics or those mm-hmm. things like we are we're like at a threshold we are at a we're at a paradigm shift mm-hmm. when it comes to our technological capability and it's forcing us to you know in a lot of ways abandon some of the ethical paradigms that got us here because they're no longer complex enough or sophisticated enough or or deep enough to deal with what our technology is capable of delivering into the world and you know and it's not capable of affecting you know or it's not capable of framing how that technological experience will shape our lives or our ability to interact with each other or to maintain the systems that have evolved into being that have gotten us to where it is that we are right now. And I think games like Deus Ex, you know, what's interesting about something like that is that I almost wonder whether or not that's our culture's way of exploring that the development of that paradigm in real time in the public space in a I way mean, that we, we've never had to do before. Um, 
Does that I make think sense? so. I, th- I think you're spot on because um, in the game, you come across people of different political ideology or just ideology in general, whatever level you want to discuss it at. And it goes through very plausible situations. Sure. Um, the difference between naturals and augs, sure. as they call them. And there's a movement called... Uh, Purity first, which mm-hmm. are very anti-Augs, and they have which is slang- total nativism in a, in a, in a completely exactly. wrapped in a totally different guise. But anyway, it's anti-technology as opposed to anti anyways anti whatever. Yes. We'll yeah, let that set. We're gonna let we're gonna let that happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but really, that's that's exactly what it is. Oh, and yeah. there's prejudices that arise. Yep. And what comes out? How does society react to that? Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. Anyway, I did remember how we got back onto those tangents. To assess the screen? To assess. It was VR. I'm so sorry. No, it was was Bethesda (laughs) Games. Yes, it was. Okay, right, right. I finally remembered an asynchronous gaming plot. Okay. Uh, That's what I was scribbling over here. Okay. you have these games that are such large scale that when you have these asynchronous uh, gaming plots or plot lines that... In Deus Ex Mankind Divided, don't go on the tangent this time, <laughs> uh, I had to, like just busted out of this one area and I'm just like hacking my way through everything and stealthing my way through all sorts of stuff and picking up anything that's not nailed down, basically, mm-hmm. because that's what you do. And I picked up these like medical packages. Mm-hmm. Like there's nondescript, there's nothing in them, it was just medical packages. And they were listed as story items. And I thought to myself, well, here we go, asynchronous gaming going on. Don't know what these are for. There's no description associated with them, but I'm going to need them at some point. And I make my way a little bit farther into the game, and there were actually a quest item that someone was going to send me on a retrieval mission for. And they had already pre-programmed the dialogue in there where um, Adam Jensen, the the main character, says like, uh, after he's asked to go get these packages, he's like, oh, uh, I've already been there. The, uh, The storerooms weren't as secure as they thought they were. Here they are. So they're already pre-programmed. That's interesting. So it's so it's adaptive storyline. Yes, that's interesting. And you and and the and the Bethesda games do that. That's got to be re- because then then what you're programming algorithmically, I think, are your gaming scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're gaming non-linear scenarios within within the within the engine, and you're trying to accommodate for so many yeah. variables, so many different variations of gameplay. There were some uh, quests in some of the Fallout series where um, I would go do the side quests Mm -hmm. and then get back to the main storyline at some point. And they would tell me to go clear out whatever this one location was or go retrieve this item. And I had the dialogue options already. Like, hey, I've already been there. I already got it for you. Like, oh, whoa, you're efficient. So there was an entire conversation Mm pre-programmed in anticipation of people doing things out of order. Yep, absolutely. How do you manage all of that and still maintain... A bug-free. Game. I don't. I don't know because you because don't. what you, you don't because I mean, unless you recognize that there are only a certain number of action-oriented permutations that can that can affect any given situation or scenario, mm-hmm. and basically what you're doing is you're algorithmically programming those permutations okay. to adapt okay. in real time. And I'm going to take another few steps back. Okay. I remember how we got onto the Bethesda games. Yes. Please continue. <laughs> the, the VR aspect mm-hmm. and Bethesda during their E3 conference. Bring it all the way back. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was so 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I looked at the time on the screen. Um, they released VR games for 
Fallout 4 and Doom. Now, Doom, you're going to need extra pairs of pants to play if you're playing that in VR. God, I'm going to have to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the hey, idea... Tell my wife, honey, I'm going to go buy Doom and a couple of extra pairs of pants, because apparently that's what's necessary to play this properly. Um, so they're already establishing a system where a large-scale virtual environment mm-hmm. um, is capable of being explored in a virtual reality setting. And what works wow. for this is that these are already established games. They're established and well-known IPs. Yep. They're already created. Yep. It And this, again, is not to diminish anything that Bethesda is doing, but they're already created. They're adapting a pre something pre-rendered world for a VR application. Interesting. I wonder if that's sort of the... I so, wonder if that's gapping. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I wonder whether or not they recognize the fact that they've already got all of this back-end IP that they've it's developed. And then it's that they're be. literally, they're going to use it to jump platforms, and they're mm-hmm. going to use it to build a baseline on a new platform that has potentially more significant evolutionary potential mm. for their digital product? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. I think so. Because, right. like I said, it's, they're established titles, established franchises. Which is really interesting if you think about it in relation to, what is it, Wolfenstein 3D? Yeah, because, yeah because that was the first... Wasn't that the first? I event? think that was like one of the first. One of the very first that was doing a first-person shooter. First what became shooter. the FPS genre. So, so given that Doom, to the best of my knowledge, is an offshoot of what was once Wolfenstein. Yeah. Okay. For them to jump platforms in that way may actually be the next evolutionary process to you know from technology mm-hmm. to technology in a way that mirrored. You know, the development of that first-person shooter with the first Wolfenstein. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. So, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> man. So, uh, we mentioned the Assassin's Creed movie and how you got into the Assassin's Creed franchise. Uh, the Assassin's Creed movie, uh, they released not too long ago a... I guess I'll call it a trailer of a 125-foot freefall stunt. Did you watch this? I did. That is awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> I... I will admit that as I watched that I put myself in those shoes and wondered whether or not like I I wonder what it's like to say I'm about to do the largest free fall at how many years was it? 30-ish? Yes, I'm going to go throw myself 100 and change 125 125 feet off of a platform oh. into a very squishy sort of balloon at the bottom. Yeah. That's got to be an amazing feeling. I'll tell you, when the guy popped up out of it he looked <gasps> all oh, my god. Orphans. oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. So this movie, if I'm not mistaken, is to take place during the um, Spanish Inquisition. Again, with the Mel Brooks joke. I'm well, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so much Inquisition. Oh, during, whenever I played Dragon Age Inquisition, every time I started that game up, yep. I started singing that stupid song. It's, it's unavoidable. You, can't, you cannot Inquisition, let's <laughs> begin. You know what's awesome about that? Like, I'm, I'm fairly con- confident that you cannot talk about or teach or play through anything that involves the Inquisition and not reference that. I just, I, I don't know, I feel like there's, anyways, please continue. But, like, with your, like, historical background, like, how many different storylines can they pursue if it's in that time frame? And knowing, like, you played the first few Assassin's Creed. I did. So you understand the connection between the, the game's lore and their plot premises yep. and the the church. And again, this is a non-political podcast. We're just making the correlations here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at one point in time, I want to say it was either in 3 or in 4, there was 
a lot of a lot of the plot line of the game was built out around how there was a, a, a brother, brotherhood of assassins that was much larger than Altair and that had grown in its in its okay. scope. So its that included. would be the fourth one. That would be Assassin's Creed Brotherhood. Okay, so the the that's where it really expanded. The, the potential, I think, to include additional plot lines I think really evolves from there because depending on the geography of those of the participants in that brotherhood Mm -hmm. coming out of that particular storyline and where they lived and the historical context that they were a part of and the major um I guess sort of things that were going on in those geographies at any given point in time, it could get, I think, really mm. complex depending yeah. on how far out you were you you allowed that um, that gene pool to mm-hmm. spread. Because I mean, it's all it's all genetically based, anyways. Right. So I, I think um, you know it's interesting. There's there's sort of like an ancestry.com tie into this conversation. <laughs> no, really. I mean, because yeah. you got to figure that that fourth one took place in. The that was Renaissance. It was 15, 14th century, 15th century. Yeah, if it was uh, the Ezio trilogy. Exactly. So, so but, it's but, Renaissance Italy. But then, it, so if you were to follow all of the members of that brotherhood, mm-hmm. and if you were sort of to do the Ancestry.com version of it and see where they went, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, until um, the modern time, which was, and forgive me, I can't remember. Desmond Miles. Yeah, exactly, uh, to, Desmond, uh, to the time of Desmond Miles. Like, how many other Desmond Miles... Are out there yeah. that have roughly equivalent, you know, embedded genetic experiences that could conceivably be tapped into in other physical geographies yeah. around the globe. And at the end of uh, Assassin's Creed Three, mm-hmm. which is the uh, the consensus of the flop of the series, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, I, think I heard that. Yes. Yeah, the one that took place well locally, basically, <laughs> You're right here in the Mohawk which is Valley. Because so I got to tell you, the potential was, for that was great. Oh, so great, especially you know. Us being you know, in Schenectady, yep, um, the place where right on our you know city signs we have the images of the Indians burning down this the, the stockade s- for the second time. <laughs> for the second time, <laughs> when yeah. burning it down once just wasn't enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so much discourse during that time period. Yeah, it was one more time uh, of feeling. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, it was Assassin's Creed Four Black Flag where they introduced um, an expanded. Bloodline okay. and Abstergo was able to tap into. They developed the technology within the game that people could relive memories of other people not in their direct bloodline. So I feel like that's almost like too much of a deviation from the primary. Yeah, primary it? it was kind of, but um, it was it's Abstergo. You know, it's the the Templars, and they're doing their limitless technology resources and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. uh, they were able to get a hold of like a store of different blood samples from the Templars. Interesting. So what did they do? Just sort of embed it in the machine and allow the person... Basically. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, they turned... <laughs> it's actually kind of interesting. They turned the Animus mm-hmm. into a gaming platform and released it to the public. That's interesting. So, you know how you have like the gene folding or the protein folding yeah. s- stuff? They turned it into one of those concepts for people to go out and explore these different... That's kind of remarkable. Yeah. It's, if you pay attention to the actual like modern day lore within Assassin's Creed, that is huge. That's really interesting. That is, yeah, that is massive to the impact. But yeah, I mean, the, the Inquisition, that mm-hmm. time frame, I mean, church intrigue. 
the, it, state oh, oh my god, it is, it is like the definition of <laughs> Byzantine <laughs> political, yeah. uh, you know... It, it's 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 a Byzantine political environment. It's a Byzantine religious environment. Mm. It's it's weird. It's like this this very toxic intersection of church and politics. You know what I mean? That was operating on an international with, scale with yeah. absolution. Yes, absolution, and with and really with absolute power. I mean, with you know, it, again, not to get. You know, I guess it's not political. But when you start talking about the inclusion of divine mandate in in terms of how people, you know, interact with each other or control each other or manipulate each other or punish each other, Mm -hmm. I mean, those are those are some pretty extraordinary um, conditionals, Mm -hmm. you know, to to put into you know a, a, a cultural paradigm. You know what I mean? And and the ability to explore that in a video game is yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, this one's going to be a movie. This is the Assassin's Creed movie that's, that's coming. That's really so. That's yeah. that's interesting. That's I didn't I didn't realize that that was sort of the that actually makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good times. Uh, so, Chase, um, we're gonna run a little long on this podcast, but anyway, you actually wanted to talk about a little bit about The Witcher. Yeah, I I thought you know so uh, open disclosure on Witcher. You know, I I played. I'm one of those guys who will take a good fantasy game and play pretty much every um, quest line in the game until the game is done. Hooray completionist. Yeah, I am, I am totally I am totally of that vein. Especially when you find you know, when I find something that is aesthetically beautiful, that's got a really sophisticated um, sort of um, you know player experience, mm-hmm. um, and something that's got really well constructed storylines and quest lines, and something something that's sort of philosophically deep mm-hmm. um, and, and provides, you know, the the ability to explore ideas outside of the game through the game. Um, okay. I, I think that that's kind of an interesting thing. Now, we were talking before uh, we started recording, and I have not played The Witcher. However, I was able to pick up Witcher 2 one, uh, for free when it was free on Xbox Games with Gold. And I was only able to get through, like, the intro mission. And we were talking before we started recording how you felt like this is one of the games where they're making games now for a mature audience. Very much so, you know, and I, I think that that's what's so extraordinary about this and game. And, like, I played the intro, and it was just like the intro cinematics. And when a girl is waking up in bed with whoever, I can't remember her name at this point. Insert prostitute ass yeah. is basically <laughs> what it comes down to. And, and I'm like, wow, we're... We're going there. Yeah, we're absolutely. going there right up in the intro. Cinematic. You know what? You know what's interesting about it though is the 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 sexual content in in the series because it's not just in three; it's in the series mm-hmm. as a whole. Is actually not even really the most provocative aspect of what makes this game or these games rather adult games. Mm-hmm. It, it there is a bleakness to these games that okay. is not something that I've seen in most other games. There are a whole host of scenarios where there is absolutely no good choice. Oh, there, man. You, you, it's lose-lose. It just depends on what you want to lose and how you want to lose it. You know what I mean? And okay. it's there's a cynicism to it that I think is really dark. And there is, I think, sort of a, a real-worldiness oh, sort of 
to it that is not something that I've seen in too many other games. Okay. You know what I mean? So the sexual content, I feel to a certain extent, it's almost like a by, it's like a byproduct it, it, to not have that in a space that is already this this dark. Yeah, because would be, it'd be a disservice because it's like we're going to go all the way to the extremes on all these different things, but this little section we right here. We kind of can't touch that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it would be it would be a little bit puritanical and kind of overweening for a, a, you know, for a game series that it is neither puritanical nor mm-hmm. it, it, the game. The series does not play it safe in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. You know, either in terms of, I mean, it 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 is sex and violence. It is sex and violence. It's power and control. It's it it, it shows the the dangers of um, religion. It shows the pitfalls of um, complex politics. Okay. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, there are there are really complex gender politics in the game. Really? I thought were okay. very, yeah, absolutely. They were very interesting. Anything that you can give as an example? You know, I, it was the first time that I have ever seen openly gay characters okay. uh, in the game in situations that could be sexualized for for the the, the game player themselves. Okay. Because Bioware's gone down that road a That's few interesting. Times. I, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't realize yeah, that. Bioware in their Dragon Age and Mass Effect games, they've, they've gone down that road. It's not... I mean, it's openly gay, but it's not... It's still kind of off to the side, if you know what I mean. And that's what this is, too. But, for, I mean, for me personally, that was the first time that okay, I had ever so seen in that. So in your gaming in, experience. In, in my gaming experience. And it was one of those things where, you know, I think that that actually shows... Um, first of all, I think it shows the prevalence of the issues that you know that are 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 part of that aspect of the game in you know in our in our current society, and okay. the need to to bring those into the gaming experience and to explore those in the gaming experience. But I also think that it shows a, I I think it shows a willingness on the ha- on behalf of uh, you know the 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 developers to bring complex issues into the game that don't that are open ended that don't have you know that that depending on how you see those issues there's a level of moral ambiguity mm-hmm. um, that I think is really interesting in this game um, th- that is allowed for that I haven't seen in other games okay. and I'm not I'm not falling out on that mm-hmm. spectrum in any in any way shape or form but w- the 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 choice potential mm-hmm. um, in what this game allows for, I think, is not something I've experienced before. And okay. I think that those choices, they are, they're very adult choices. You know what yeah. I mean? And they're... The, the moral ambiguity is coming becoming more prevalent in gaming. Some play a little bit safer than others. One thing that comes to mind is Watch Dogs. Unfortunately, Aiden Pierce was a pretty dry character. But, you know, critiques aside of the game... Um, there were plenty of times where there wasn't necessarily a clear choice, mm-hmm. um, a clear right or wrong, and there are also a lot of things. Um, obviously, the game dealt a lot with cybersecurity and uh, personal mm-hmm. um, information, and there were times where, like one of the side quests that you could do was you go outside of different apartment buildings or other business complexes, you hack into some remote location access point outside the building you work your way through the network and you're able to get a hold of some type of camera somewhere in the building Mm -hmm. and through that camera you kind of move around and you land the camera on someone's either laptop or cell phone or tablet or something and you're able to hack into their bank accounts and steal their money so that's done repeatedly Uh, some of the 
things that you see while you're looking through that camera. Some of them are kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one where Aisha Tyler's character in there, yeah, she does a few voices in the game. Does um, she really? Yeah, she does. That's fantastic. Uh, okay. She's so awesome. Yes. Um, where she's like, listen, if people want to spy on me while I'm lounging around my apartment farting, you know, whatever, you know, do your thing. Yes, that's so Aisha Tyler. Yes. Um, so that's, you know, the comment. There's another time where you work your way through and you could watch someone playing some Dance Dance Revolution game or one of the let, uh, Just Dance games. And they're, they're, uh, joking around. You got a stupid Think about what you're face. talking about, though. I mean, essentially you're talking about cyber voyeurism oh. within a video game. I mean, like, yeah. it's, it's, and here, but here's where it gets really dark and kind of twisted. There are others that are not comical and they are very serious and will make you feel uneasy. Again, the idea of these activities, you can, you can get more money through little no, cyber crime. So it's the whole, that whole moral discussion is a discussion all Absolutely. of its own. But some of the things that you're watching, you end up seeing a couple, they're, they're laying in bed, the man is coughing his like brains out and the wife is saying, like, honey, we know, I know this isn't a comfortable thing to talk about, but we need to start getting your resources in order. And it turns out this guy's like dying of cancer. Sort of like end of life conversation. It's an end of life yeah. conversation. Which is really kind of the most intimate conversation you that can two pos- people can possibly have. And you're going around the room and you're like, oh, I'm going to hack this guy's bank account. And I'm like, it's interesting because the context that's of the moral ambiguity—that's well, a really interesting and there's some, set of decisions. And there's other situations like that where, again, I get it—it's a game, and you know, I'm, there's no consequences. But these are the real risks. You know what's interesting, though? Yes, you're right. There are no consequences, but I—I I honestly feel like the the ability to do that in in the digital environment is an opportunity to explore our own moral, you know. An mm-hmm. ethical paradigm in a way that you know that we wouldn't otherwise, and and the fact that we're starting to create game spaces that allow us to explore stuff that is that complex and that's that um, sensitive mm-hmm. is is really interesting because I mean j- just think about think about the game space five years ago. It was not doing what it is that you're describing. Not to this level. Not no. to this level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, and there's other situations where you can walk down the street, and if you just get someone within your camera view, you can. I'm using air quotes right now. Hack their cell phone and get their bank information. But whenever you profile someone, a little snippet of whatever their hypothetical life is like, like this person's a collector of comic books. This person does this. This person does that. And I mean, you can you can kind of chuckle, but it brings a sense of realism, oh, as sure. in like these are real people that yeah. are victims of these crimes. Yep. And you can kind of chuckle along and it's like, oh, well, you know, I share interest with that person so I'm not going to, you know, take his money or you see what this other person is into. Like, oh, screw that guy. I'm going to totally take his money. What does that say about you? You know, it's so interesting because I keep coming back to the VR component of this mm-hmm. conversation because like what, okay, so if if we know that Doom is jumping, you know, the pl- jumping platforms and heading off into VR, mm-hmm. how long is it before this stuff becomes VR? And And I think more so than that, how long before i mean there are there are digital currencies that are out there i think it's warcraft that actually has a monetary value for certain items to the best of my knowledge there, people are actually selling things yes war, yeah things world of warcraft that, definitely um absolutely has some type of like trading post thing where people like sell accounts or sell resources exactly, for actual but, money. but yeah you're talking mm. about
about real money for you know for digital assets and there's a there's a blending that's going on there in a way there's a there's a, a, a there's an overlap between you know real world economic um, systems and virtual or game embedded economic mm-hmm. systems you know because and I'm not just talking about it in terms of currency but I'm talking about in terms of like either hard assets or the digital version of hard assets when you start talking about the jump from one platform into another there's only a certain amount of time before you know that conversation that you're watching or the ability to hack into that person's bank account how how close can that get in a VR context to having the ability to tap into somebody's real bank account only in a virtual environment as opposed to in a real environment there's a really interesting blending space that mm-hmm. that could conceivably evolve into and in, in, in I suspect probably a not you know to to a distant period of time no, no it's gonna come quick whoo yeah all so right we got that <laughs> okay so back to Witcher no, if, you, if there's something else you want to talk about no you know I just you, you mentioned earlier uh, you know the racism that you saw in Deus Ex mm-hmm. um, or the the would you classify it as like xenophobia kind of thing or is it not like... so much xenophobia okay uh, because it doesn't have to do with anyone from an outside country it's their own it's your own countryman it's okay. your own but it's Ogs versus non exactly okay there's a lot of racism in Witcher 3 okay in certain plot lines which is really interesting there's an enormous amount of racial tension between elves and dwarves and humans and a variety of other different species or different humanoid sort of species which is really interesting it's interesting to experience that in a digital space it's actually interesting to be on the receiving end of it in the digital space because Geralt who's the main character Mm -hmm. um, is a witcher and witchers are viewed as as freaks yeah and they're, you know, they're ostracized, they're treated, you know, pejoratively, they're, you know, they're marginalized, etc. And, you know, not only are you on the receiving end of it, but you also get the opportunity to connect with other, I guess, sort of like, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, like minority populations mm-hmm. within the game space um, and connect with them on the fact that you are in some sort of a socially... Um, disadvantaged group just like they are mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting because again you know I feel like it, I feel like we're having this conversation with ourselves in a space that you know is not a real world um, environment yeah. and because this is what's going on this is what's going on it's mimetic it's mm. really really interesting and the other thing that I found really prevalent in it was that there's an ardent sense of misogyny in the game like there's hardcore and, and it, really? it's, okay. but what's interesting about it is that it's this it's this low-lying sort of implicit aspect of the the gender role dynamic in the game. Um, and I actually have on a number of occasions wondered, like I have a friend named Dylan who uh, who is a hardcore gamer girl and I love her to bits. She's awesome people. I respect the hell out of her opinions on games um, and um, she plays the same kinds of games that I do, so we do a bit of back and forth in terms of like what's good and what's not. Cool. And I, I've often wondered like what Delin's experience of this game would be versus what my experience of this game would be, and strictly how she, based on yeah, gender. strictly based on gender, and like how she would perceive, you know, the main character and how the main character connects with women or doesn't connect with women, and how women are portrayed. I just mm. I thought it was really interesting because there is this extremely misogynistic subtext to it that in a way 
it's almost ex- it's almost caricaturized to the point where if you're paying attention to it, if you're paying attention to the game, you should be paying attention to this, and it should make you uncomfortable. That's the only way I can describe okay. it. Like if you're not catching it, mm-hmm. you're not paying attention. You're missing an aspect of the game that's really important. And I feel like there's this there's this almost sort of subliminal-ish message that this is not okay in this space, but it's what goes on, and it shouldn't be okay in the real world, mm-hmm. but it's what goes on. Again, it's I feel like there are a lot of parallels there's, that are being drawn. There's so much social commentary. Oh my god, and, it's absolutely. In modern gaming, yeah. basically. But, it, but it, what, what I find really striking about it is the level of subtlety of that social commentary. Okay. Because, you know, there there's social commentary where like you're, you're being bludgeoned over okay. the head by social commentary, <laughs> and then there are these these things that are they're very um it's very subtextual um it's 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 very it's sort of the background hum of the game dynamic Mm -hmm. you know what i mean but if you don't pick up on it you're kind of not you're you're missing you're missing it and and, and in a way you're actually missing the full dimensionality of what the game offers All right, so we're going to move into the final phase of this podcast. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this is the final five. These are five questions to wrap up the podcast that range from irrelevant to irreverent. All right. All right, so first question. Like both, anyways. (laughs) Uh, The first two are uh, pretty standard, and the last three, well, spark even more discussion. Okay. First one, coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Yes. Dark, black, like my soul. <laughs> black, like my heart. Yes. Um, excellent. Yeah, same, same here. Same here. Uh, do you do any tabletop gaming? Oh, God, I haven't done that in a million years, but I love it. I used to play... So I, I played a ton of Warhammer and a ton of Space yeah. Marine. Oh, you got oh, it. You're a Warhammer it. guy. I, I played a ton. <laughs> I, I, did get, I, I did plenty of... Uh, did get my D, uh, D&D on a million years ago. Mm-hmm. I had an amazing DM. Yeah. Um, Nathan Schomer, if you're out there and you're listening, much love. It was awesome. <laughs> he was an amazing DM. Um, but uh, things moved very quickly into hardcore, hardcore Warhammer and, uh, and Space Marine. Wow. All right. Third question. Theravada or Mahayana? Oh, Mahayana. Mahayana. All day. Practicing okay. Buddhist, who is sitting here drinking an IPA, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, alright, so what exactly is the difference between the Theravada and the Mahayana? Oh, well, Mahayana is Buddhism, Theravada is, actually no, Theravada is a, is a practicing school of Buddhism as well. I don't, to be honest with you, know very much about it. Okay. Um, I just know that the, I practice Zen, which is probably doctrinally closer to the Mahayana school okay. um, than Theravadan is. Um, beyond that, I don't know that I could really, really get give into. you. Yeah, okay. exactly. That's actually a really complex question. <laughs> there, there are there are classes that are taught. That question, but anyways, the answer is woo. Yeah, the answer is woo. Or woo, as the case may be. Um, the pogues or flogging Molly? Oh, the pogues. All the day. pogues that's all the even, way. That's not even a question. Sorry, that's not even Sorry. a question. Sorry, I actually. So, all right, not to not to digress too much, but so little story about the pogues. Um, I used to bounce at this. Uh, I was a bouncer at an Irish bar uh, in Boston a million years ago, and it was a lot of fun. And I've opened up many a door with other people's faces, but that's also a lot of conversation. <laughs> so, anyways, I was at the bar one night, um, and my brother Mikey was there. Mikey comes over to me and he's got this like frenzied look on his face and I'm like dude what's going on are you okay and he's like you have no idea who's sitting at the bar and I'm like 
No, I don't. <laughs> You're sitting at the bar, Mike. And he said, Shane McGowan's sitting at the bar. Wow. And I looked at him and was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And so I said, that's, that's fantastic. And he's like, there's more. And I said, well, what's going on? And he, he pulls out a wad of $300. And he goes, this fell down below Shane McGowan's chair. And I was like, wait a minute, what? And he's like, Shane McGowan just dropped $300. And he looks at me and he's like, well, what do I do with it? And I said, Mike, what do you mean what do you do with it? <laughs> Give Shane McGowan back his 300 bucks." Yeah. And he was like, all right, awesome. So Shane McGowan <laughs> is sitting there. And, and ironically, Shane McGowan, when he had terrible teeth, because he did, legendarily <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, was not from whiskey. Shane McGowan was an ardent drinker of peach schnapps. It was horrible, horrible <laughs> stuff. Oh, oh, awful. And like, if that doesn't rot your teeth, nothing will. But anyways, right. so Shane McGowan is sitting at the bar with a shot glass full of peach schnapps. And he's furiously scribbling away on a bar napkin. Okay, and my brother walks over, taps Shane on the shoulder, and goes, "I think you dropped this," and hands Shane McGowan the three hundred dollars. Shane takes the three hundred dollars, looks at my brother, looks him up and down, makes my hair stand up talking oh, about okay. this. Okay, doesn't say a word, takes the napkin that he's been writing on, crumples it up, throws it over the bar, pulls another napkin out, and starts writing. Writes for about five or six minutes. Okay, and then looks at my brother and I, and he's like, can I buy you guys a drink? And I, we were like, oh my god, yeah, would you like to have a whiskey? And he's like, I don't drink whiskey, I drink peach schnapps. And I was like, that was a weird moment, because I was like, wait, you don't drink whiskey, you drink peach schnapps? But anyways, yeah, that just didn't, it just didn't, anyways, so we sat down, we had a drink with Shane McGowan, he was absolutely lovely, just super, super nice guy, great conversationalist, you know what I mean, just nice, interesting dude. And, you know, we we went our way, and he went his way. About 45 minutes later, he was with an absolutely lovely lady who was sitting immediately <laughs> off to his left, which it should be no surprise, regardless of the right. teeth. But anyways, um, she came over to us and she said, I just, I just want you to know what happened. And I said, well, no, I have absolutely no idea what happened. And she said, well, Shane was writing a song when you guys came over. And we said, really? We had no idea. And she said, yeah, he was writing a song about how humanity sucks and how oh, you God. can't trust people. And how everyone is in this for themselves. And then your brother came over and handed Shane McGowan back his 300 bucks. And Shane crumpled up the song and started to write something new. So I just want you to know that in that small act of kindness, your brother changed Shane McGowan's perspective on how wow. people are. Yeah, it was one of those, like, re- anyways. So, Pogues. <laughs> so, like, Pogues. all day Pogues. Anyways. <sighs> wow. I know, right. seriously. That's, that's a heck of a story. Hey, man. Right. Drank whiskey with Shane McGowan, that, so. Nice. Love you, flogging Molly. Have seen you a dozen times. Knitting Factory back in 1999-ish. Mm-hmm. And then some. Mm-hmm. Love me some Pogues. All right. All right. Final question. The final question. Yes. <laughs> stay, stay with me for a bit. Um, under your watch, how many mortars of freedom rained down drops of liberty over this past treasonous colonial day? Oh, <laughs> so many mortars of freedom. <laughs> All wow. right. So, Do I have to actually give you a number? <laughs> so 346,228. <laughs> I don't know if they're simultaneous, though. I feel like... They should be staggered, at least. So the story behind this is Joe posted on Facebook a mortar the size of my head. Oh, that mortar. Oh, yes. Okay. I you were talking. Okay. No, that that's a treasonous colonial day for our United States uh, Independence uh, Day. Ah, yes. Now the joke sets in. Okay. All right. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. How many mortars? Yeah. Okay. So 
are we talking about this most recent explosive Yeah, the most device? recent one. Okay, so I should clarify, now that we're talking about explosives, um, <laughs> I am in the process of being licensed to become a professional pyrotechnician on the side, um, <laughs> and I have been shooting professional-grade fireworks for the last five years, okay. um, and have been shooting it with a major fireworks house uh, that operates up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, if you're talking about this past year, yes, that is the largest um, professional grade firework allowable by law for transport over land without a police escort. It's um, <laughs> it's huge. Uh, that is an eight inch shell. It's bigger than your head. Yep, I shot it out of a tube that's as tall as me. Um, the ground shook. It rained. It rained fire. Over you mean, my head. You mean drops of liberty. Yeah, so many drops of liberty. No, I mean, literally, like, when it shot out of the tube, the ground completely shook, and I, wow. I managed to make it 15 feet away. I lit it with a, I hand lit it. I lit it with a road fire. It was the largest <laughs> firework that we shot at that show. It went 2,000 feet in the air, okay, and it and the break on that explosive was 1,500 feet in diameter. It was gargantuan. And I have to tell you, I would like those every day. It was wonderful. Anything that I have to lower down into the tube with a rope, I'm all about it. Anyways. Oh, man. Fantastic. It was, it, I got to tell you, it was super cool. <laughs> And that is all the time we have for this episode. Time for end of show plugs. You can follow me, Anthony Rossi, on my personal Twitter at Hypersyntax. That is at H-Y-P-3-R-S-I-N-T-4-X. Or you can follow the podcast directly at VGXTPod. Also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash VideoGameCrosstalk. The podcast is hosted directly on Podbean and can be found at videogamecrosstalk.podbean.com. As for my guest, Joe, where can our beautiful listeners follow you around? Um, you can't. Okay, so, you're not so, much, <laughs> so not so much on the social media, but give your uh, consulting you can, a plug. Um, I am, uh, I'm Joe at jsbermanconsulting.com. You can reach me by email there, and you can find me on Facebook. I'm Joe Berman. All right. And finally, if you are a gamer or know a gamer that wants to talk some tech or science news, let me know. Do you know of some tech news that you'd like to hear discussed? Do you have any other general questions that you would like answered on the show? Send an email to videogamecrosstalk at gmail.com and give me the deets on what's going down. Please don't forget to like, review, subscribe, and share this podcast all over your social media accounts. And we can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thank you one last time for hanging out with us. Thank you, Joe, for coming to do this podcast. Absolutely a pleasure. And in the words of Buddha, there are only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth. Not going all the way and not starting.